The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. And so today we're in Mark chapter 10, and uh, we're going to be looking only at the first 12 verses. However, they pack a powerful punch. And so uh, we're going to look at that today. So if you're with me in Mark chapter 10, the words will be on the screen, uh, although I encourage you to look at your Bible if you brought one with you today. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, as it was custom, uh, as custom, uh, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he replied to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and then send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. God, this is a tough topic, and it is um, a controversial topic, and so I pray that you would give us grace as we uh, go through your word to see that even if our marriages are broken, we still have a Savior who is more than willing to mend things together. And so, Father, I pray that as he was truly human, that we would feel his empathy and that we would experience his grace here, God. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. In 1955, Frank Sinatra released a song that uh, defined how Americans viewed marriage. It went like this. Love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. This, I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Love and marriage, love and marriage. It's an institute that you can't disparage. Ask the local gentry. There's a word we don't use very much. And they will say it's elementary. Try and try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, try, and you will only come to this conclusion. This song represents the ethos of marriage and culture in the 1950s, that marriage was to be expected and that marriage was to be championed and treasured and protected. Uh, To the average person in 1955, the idea of marriage was innate. It's just what you did in order to help society be more productive and uh, advance you as a person. And according to CDC data, the average divorce rate in 1955 was under 20%. Though it wasn't unheard of, it was a very low percentage of people that, that would get divorced. Now, if we compare that today, uh, statistically speaking, just under 50% of marriages uh, survive today. The divorce rate is staggeringly high when it comes to subsequent marriages. For second marriages, only 40% survive. 
For third marriages, only 27% uh, statistically survive. So even though divorce has been made more common today, we need to step back and see the progressive cultural disaster that the divorce culture has, has caused. This was predicted by a Harvard sociologist back in 1941 uh, in a book that he wrote called Our Age, in which he warned that the incoming cultural crisis was going to be primarily because of the breakdown of marriage and family. And so we're seeing that today. And I bring this up because we're in a section in the Gospel of Mark in which we are trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Of all avenues in life, Jesus wants us to commit every part of ourselves to him. True discipleship is holistic. And if we want Jesus to have authority over our lives, it includes our marriages as well. Theologian Abraham Kuyper, <clears throat> excuse me, once said, There's not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. And this includes marriage. Now, I need to preface this by saying, first of all, that I hope my voice makes it through this. Second, that I recognize that there are some people here who are divorced. Uh, some people here that might be widowed. And some folks here that might have been single uh, their entire lives. And I recognize some of the pain that that brings. And I want to uh, say that God values you in that situation. Uh, singleness is a gift from God. And we who are married need you to encourage us to hold up our vows. Just as you need us to encourage you with where you're at as well. So it is that we approach Mark 10. These opponents try to trap Jesus in defining what divorce is and the stipulations. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. He goes back to God's original plan to design for marriage. Um, and simply put, Jesus says that marriage and its breakdown is an issue of worship. Divorce exists because worship doesn't in the hearts of humanity. So let's break down this passage. The first thing we need to do is recognize the authority on divorce and marriage. Recognize that authority. When Sinatra wrote Love and Marriage, he wrote it in a context that was vastly different than ours today. In 1955, the general public viewed institutions as authoritative. The church, the family, and the government, for example, were institutions that were viewed favorably in terms of authority and how you viewed the world. External authority is what kept society ordered. It's what uh, helped things stay peaceful and productive in the social hierarchy in the culture. And today, that view of authority is only intrinsically personal. In other words, the culture believes now that the only authority that exists is not external, but rather it is in what is inside of us. And so it makes sense then why we have this 
ethos of what's true for you is not true for me. Because if the authority comes from within, then I can choose what is true and what's not. We've gone from love and marriage is an institute you can't disparage to Sinatra's I did it my way. This makes sense then why we don't even hold to the authority of basic biology anymore. If your biology is telling you that you're something, but yet your mind feels like it's not, biology now has to bow down to your intrinsic authority. It's why marriage is the way that it is and why we destroy it. The authority, according to culture, is not God in his word. It's what we believe and what we think in our own minds. So if I am happy, and if I'm not happy in my marriage, or if I get bored with my partner, or if I find someone that I think might be better, well, the authority within me says I can just put that aside and move on to that. No harm, no foul. It's intrinsic. It's the authority is there. But uh, Jesus meets us this morning and he says, hold up. There's an authority that is way more better than what our culture says. And he says, it's me. I am the author of life and marriage itself. That Jesus alone has the authority to define marriage, what it is, what it is not, and how it breaks up. He determines the purpose, the, spo- the, the scope, and the ground. And as Jesus is making his way from Capernaum here, he gets met with some of his opponents who stop him with a question. Now look in verse 2. Some Pharisees who came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now in 13 years of pastoring, I've had a lot of folks ask me questions about theology, ask me questions about ethics, and uh, the Bible. And I can only point, point to a handful of times in which I know that they were asking it maliciously to try to trap me to get me in trouble. The rest, most people are well-meaning. These Pharisees, they're not well-meaning here. They've been trying to find to get, they've tried to find a, a way to get rid of Jesus all the way back in Mark chapter 2. And uh, they have a couple motivations here. The first is a social motivation. That if they can get Jesus to say, yes, divorce is permissible, then they have to force him to define on what terms divorce is okay. There were two schools of thought. One that said divorce is okay in any instance, and one that was more conservative that said no, only in very limited circumstances. So if Jesus were to say yes, well, then he's got cultural pressure. But if he were to say no, there's political pressure. Because notice in verse 1, they're in the region of Judea. In Judea, at this time, it is ruled by Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, if you remember, is the one that imprisoned John the Baptist for criticizing his wife, Herodias, for divorcing her husband, Philip, who was Herod the Tetrarch's brother. And it ended up being John's demise. So if he answers no, divorce is not permissible, well, then they can go to Herod and say, hey, this Jesus here thinks that what you did was wrong. Jesus would end up with the same fate as John the Baptist. So this is probably most likely the way that the Pharisees were trying to trap him because they figured if they can't kill him on their own, well, then let's let the government do it. Let's let Herod the Tetrarch take care of that. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. 
He goes back to the source of authority. He goes back to the scriptures, the law. And as Christians, we should take note of this. We ought not to take our cues from culture. We take our cues only from the word of God and what God's word says. And in verse 3, Jesus replies, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. And that would be true in the strictest sense of the law. But Jesus is not looking for the letter of the law. He is looking for the, the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. So uh, he blows their minds away when he says in verse 5, he wrote this command for you because of your hardness of hearts. That's not in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which the, the verse that they were citing. And yet Jesus can say this not because he is some great Bible teacher or some great preacher. He can say this because he wrote the law. It is his law. He can determine the spirit behind it. And here he is saying, this is allowable because of sin. And so Jesus here is telling us that divorce exists because people are sinful. If we didn't have the sin thing going on in our lives... Our marriages would be perfect. There'd be no problems. Any divorce, regardless of its reasons, is birthed out of sin. Now notice I did not say that divorce itself is sin. But the reasons and the causes that lead to that is because we have messed up sin-saturated marriages. It's a concession on God's part. Now we'll get to the parameters here in the third point. But for now, let's just say that Jesus here clearly allows for divorce. It's not what he intended. He wants us to stop asking, how can we get out of this? Start asking, how can we build it up? How can we treasure it? How can we strengthen it? How can we make it to be what it is? We can do that by looking at the original blueprints, which is our second point here. Get back to the original plan and purpose of God's marriage. All right, last fall, Disney Plus released this documentary uh, that was directed by Peter Jackson called Get Back. And it was a documentary of the last two weeks of the Beatles recording their final CD together, leading up to their first public performance in two and a half years. And if you are not a, even if you're not a Beatles fan, but you like music, man, you should like get a, 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 a you know, a preview two-week thing of, of Disney Plus and just watch this. Because it's fascinating. You see some of the most important and iconic songs ever written in history. Written before your very eyes. They're all just sitting around at one point. And this is one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary. And Paul McCartney grabs his bass guitar. And he just starts strumming. And as he's strumming, he starts humming the tune of Get Back. It's the first time anyone had ever heard that melody. And he puts it together. It, it, it's just so fascinating. And uh, it became the song that would uh, 
say, get back to where you once belonged. Now, when it comes to the, the issue of marriage and divorce, Jesus is singing, get back. Get back to where it once belonged. And the remedy that Jesus gives us is prescriptive in so many ways. Instead of constantly asking, how far can I go? How far can I go? What is permissible? Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to stay, stick with and stay with what is safe. So he goes back beyond Deuteronomy 25, goes back to creation, to where marriage was created and divorce did not exist. So starting in verse 6, Jesus now lays the foundation for marriage by appealing to Genesis 1.27. Notice what he says in verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So whatever marriage is, it is fundamentally between a man and a woman. It is designed only for two complementary genders. In his wise design, God created uh, male and female. They're uniquely different biologically, uh, socially, relationally, and men and women are created to work in tandem together. That's why they're, they're complementary. In appealing to creation, Jesus then excludes the possibility that there is more than one gender, or that either of them are changeable. Jesus further gives us data here to say that, uh, to talk about these genders, when he goes on to say that a man must leave his mother and father. He's very clear in that. A homosexual marriage, therefore, can never fulfill what God's ultimate design for marriage was meant to be. To be between a man and a woman, if you can even consider gay marriage marriage. Just because the state sanctions it does not make it moral. Slavery was once legal. Does that make it moral? Abortion in many states, which we'll see what happens here in the coming days, was legal and is legal. Does that make it moral? Not at all. So whatever marriage is, it's reserved to be between a man and a woman. Now verse 7 teaches us that marriage creates a new family unit that must function separately and independently from its family of origin. Look at verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother. That doesn't mean that the newlyweds are to cut off uh, their relationship from their families. It simply means that your allegiance now belongs to your spouse. And that new family together takes precedence over that relationship between uh, child and parent. Big struggles can happen in marriages. When a child, and I don't mean child, I mean like when, when the, the, I don't know, offspring, the one that got married cannot break away from their parents in a healthy way. Likewise, major marriage issues can sometimes even be linked to parents who cannot make a healthy transition into their children being married. 
It can cause friction, and, and, and many counseling appointments come because of that. So the intention of marriage is between one man and one woman into a completely new family unit. Verse 8 now talks about it becoming uh, two into one flesh. It says in verse 8, the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. So prior to being married, you are an individual. You're an individual with individual experiences and likes and desires, and your spouse is the same thing. And when you come together, they, they sort of blend, and they, uh, they, they make new experiences and, and, and a new life together. And it's hard really to, to separate that. To do so causes major pain. And as I was thinking about that to, this week, I thought of Plato actually. So, Mackenzie, what color is this? Red. Is that Lauren over there? Lauren, what color is this? That's blue, right? So you have the woman, you have the man, right? Separate individuals. But yet, when they come together, their lives become very, very intertwined. And so as they start mixing, they have experiences, they have children, they have all these life experiences. And as they uh, have that life together, they start really blending everything. And as I, this is taking a lot longer than I assumed it would, but as these two come together, it starts forming a whole new being. Now, squeaks and pops and all sorts of stuff. So the issue is, is it turns purple, folks, okay? It's not purple yet, but you can see how intermingled all of this is together. Now, let me ask you a question. If these two lives come together and it makes this purple color, what happens when I separate them? Do you have the red anymore? Do you have the blue anymore? You don't. You have two separate colors because your lives are so intermingled that if that were to be separated, it is very difficult. And, and I, I have known some folks and read some statistics that have said that divorce is more painful to some folks than a death. It's a grief that is different. The other person's still around and all that sort of stuff. So, two souls intermingled together. It's really hard to separate. And um, if there were subsequent marriages, you can see how a lot of these things get messy quick. So, because of the fall, we don't always do well in keeping up with the creation mandate. Sometimes some marriages split, and it's very painful. And you can't get your original color back. You're always going to have a part of that person with you. And so, Jesus then pre presents this uh, view of marriage the way that it was meant to be. A beautiful union between one man and one woman. So polygamy is out. Polyamorous is, is now out. That cuts a new family together for life to give God glory. So in verse 9, Jesus lays out the seriousness of this. When someone gets in the way or something. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, woe to the person and woe to the thing that separates this and makes these two Plato 
blobs, two different things. So living out marriage like this is what God planned. It's what is ideal. No, I don't want to be ignorant and, and think that if we just reoriented our understanding of what marriage is back in creation, that that's magically going to fix our issues. It's not. It's a starting point. And if you're in a marriage right now that is struggling, I want to encourage you and even plead with you to get help. Go to counseling. There's, there's nothing that is shameful about that. For the glory of God, let's work on this together. So our vision must start with the authority of Jesus and then see the vision of what marriage is supposed to be. Now third, now we get to the tough stuff. Tread softly. Tread softly on the issue of marriage and divorce. When I say tread softly, I don't mean make it trivial. Divorce and marriage are big deals. Every single person in this room, in one way or another, has been affected by divorce in some sort of way. Whether it be a family member, whether it be a son or a daughter, maybe in your own life, every single one of us has been affected by divorce somehow. So, when we approach topics like this, we have to be sensitive. And we have to know that there is great pain involved here. On the other hand, we need to be faithful to what Jesus says. So, we must tread softly because as Christian leaders and teachers uh, have taken different conclusions on these. There are some Christian leaders that would say that divorce is not permitted at all in any situation whatsoever. Then there are some that say it's permitted, but under certain guidelines. Then there are some, primarily on, on, on the left, that would say, well, you can just divorce for, for any reason. And the same is with remarriage. Some say, nope, no remarriage at all. Some say, yep, remarriage is a possibility with certain stipulations. Still, there are others. Remarriage, no questions asked. And so, we need to be sensitive that there are varying issues on this. With that being said, we have to guard against the what-if syndrome. Do you know what I mean by the what-if syndrome? Or the what-about syndrome? You might come to me and say, well, what about this issue? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? And folks, you know what? The what-about syndrome never ends. There's always issues that happen. And every marriage and every issue is unique. So if you're one of those folks who are black and white, this is an issue that's gray. This is an issue that we have to wrestle with having some tension. You might come to me and you might say, well, what about this? And here's my theological answer. Well, it depends. It depends. Because one situation is not the same as another. So I want to look at a descriptive. I want to take a descriptive look at this rather than a prescriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? I just want to observe what Jesus says. I don't want to necessarily say this is what's going to happen. So in verse 10, Jesus is once again alone with his disciples. And they're smart. They realize, hey Jesus, you never actually answered the question. And so Jesus then goes into it in verse 11. He said to him, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, notice that Jesus mentions adultery, and it is only connected to remarriage in this verse. Whoever divorces wife and remarries does this. Whoever divorces her husband and does this, you know, fill in the blank. So, it would be wrong to think that divorce in all cases, is not allowed. I think Jesus is permitting that here. But what are the parameters? In order to do that, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Mark is a summation of what Jesus would say back in Matthew chapter 19 when he said that the param- one of the parameters for potential of divorce would be adultery. The other one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in which Paul talks about desertion. In my understanding of desertion, I see that as physical, emotional, um, and relational. So whether they flee the house, whether they're abusive, or whether they're just hands-off, adultery and desertion, that seems to be it. So then I look at Mark chapter 10, and I say that any divorce beyond those reasons seems like sin. And remarriage in the aftermath, beyond those reasons, may also be sin. Now, if I were to just end it there, we'd have our heads hanging low. But Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus sets the bar so high for us in marriage that the disciples make sense in Matthew 19 when they respond to him by saying, Jesus, if this is what marriage is, then it's good for nobody to get married. But we must remember that the one who ordered marriage is also the one who reorders marriage. Jesus is the one who came to fix what is broken. He came to redeem that which needs to be built up. We must remember that Jesus died Not just for our sins. But Jesus died for our marriages. He died for those issues that we have in marriage. He died for our divorces. He died for our remarriages. So maybe your marriage is tough. Jesus is the Redeemer. Maybe you're feeling the tragic results of divorce. Jesus is the restorer. Maybe you're looking at remarriage. Jesus is the re-creator. Divorce and remarriage are not the unforgivable sins. Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. But folks, sometimes those Wagon wheels broke down, break down. Sometimes the horse gets sick. But Jesus is in the business of giving you his grace so that you and your marriage can be redeemed and restored and recreated. Why not go to him for the good of your marriage and for the glory of God? Let's pray together.